purity is the absence of, of dirt, the absence of contamination. Purity of heart, however, goes one step farther. It is not okay, it is not sufficient to just have a heart devoid of dirt. See, our hearts are like any other vessel, any other container, like a bowl or a jar. They, they don't exist in a vacuum. They cannot be truly empty. So your heart cannot just be devoid of dirt. You have to fill your heart with something. And to be pure in heart, as Jesus discusses here, we need to fill our hearts with God. We need to fill our hearts with the things of God, the thoughts of God. We need to fill our hearts with the desires of God. I said last week, the things that break God's heart should break our hearts. The things that bring God joy should bring us joy. You can't just take the dirt out, leave your, your sinful thoughts and actions behind. You've got to replace them with something of God. You have to replace them with God. And through that, we have purity of heart. We've got to fill them with the good things, the God things, because those are the best things, the pure things. That's difficult to do because we live in an impure world, don't we? Have y'all noticed that? <laughs> Have you ever noticed that we live in an impure world? You can be having the very best day. Wake up, roll out of bed, praising God, turn on the radio, it's your favorite praise song. You do your devotional that morning, it speaks right to where you are. God, you're just reading my mail. Thank you for being there. Thank you for doing these things. God, I am so blessed. My children were good to me this morning. My spouse gave me a full kiss, not the peck on the cheek. I mean, life is good. And you walk out the door and you go to work or you get into traffic and, man, the wheels just come flying off. And the next thing you know, you don't even mean to do it, but your fingers extended and some words came out. I don't know. You, you had that impure thought about your boss or somebody else. I mean, I'm just saying, we live in an impure world. It's hard to live pure with all of that darkness, with all of that dirt all around us all the time. It's kind of like taking a shower and walking outside right into a mud puddle and just wallowing in it. That's, that's what it's like to be in our world. We, we just are surrounded with this dirt. So how do we purify? I mean, how do we fill ourselves with God. How do you fill yourself with the things of God, the thoughts of God? I'm glad you asked. It starts like this. Paul actually said we've got to renew our minds. The Apostle Paul wrote, we need, to, we need to renew our minds. I think we renew our hearts the same way we renew our minds. We go and seek God. We, we, we go and seek a relationship with Him. We go to the, to the Bible and we read. We seek His truth, we pray and ask Him to meet us here, to reveal to us new things about Him, new understanding, new wisdom, to affirm the things that we already know. We, we seek God. We seek God in prayer. And prayer is equal parts talk and shut up and listen. I don't know about you, I sometimes struggle with the shut up and listen part of prayer. I like to babble on and on. We'll talk about prayer in a couple of weeks. But we seek God in these things. We seek God in, in His church, in other followers of Christ, in relationship with them. We seek God in a relationship with Him, personal relationship. We ask Him to come into our hearts. Then we seek Him in His Word. We seek Him in prayer. We seek Him in His church in relationship with the other believers. 
who are like-minded, like-hearted, and a great Christian relationship with a, with a brother or sister in Christ, you can have you know transparency and honesty, and and, and what's that word? Acca- account accountability? Yeah, that one. Accountability, where they can ask you the hard questions and you can be honest with them and not experience judgment, but experience truth and love, grace and mercy. That's how we renew our hearts. How we purify them. We seek a relationship with God, a personal, intimate relationship with Him. We seek Him in His Word, in prayer. We seek Him in His church. We seek relationships with other believers. And when we do this, I think God changes not just our hearts, but I think He changes everything about us. All of our senses, everything is changed when you have that pure heart, that heart of God and for God. I think your eyes are changed. I think we're literally going to see God, as Jesus says, in heaven if you have the heart of God. I think think the people that have the heart of God are people who are followers of Christ. Those people are going to see God in eternity in heaven. But I think Jesus is saying too that we're going to see God here in this earth. And here's how I think this works. Now, this isn't I didn't get this out of what Jesus said. This is really something that was impressed upon my heart as I prepared for this, okay? So let's call this an opinion. But here's what I think. I think when you have that pure heart of God, when you look and see other people, you see not the sinner, not the person who offended you, not the person who who flipped you off in traffic or cut you off or the boss who's tearing you down or taking credit for the work that you did, not the teenagers and children who are disrespecting you or the spouse who holds you at arm's length. You don't see people for, in that capacity anymore. What you see is a person created in the image and likeness of God, created by God with specific intent, with purpose. Somebody that God loves so much that he sent his son to die as if they were the only person that would ever need the grace and mercy of God. You'll see God in them because they are made in his image and in his likeness. And they have in them the spirit that he gave them. Whether they're followers of Christ or not, there is an element of God in every one of us. And we fail to see that so often when we deal with each other. I believe Jesus desperately wanted us to see each other the way that he sees us. Dearly loved. So incredibly valuable, precious. And I believe when we have that pure heart, that heart of God and for God, that we will see God in others. And when you see God in others, man, doesn't that change how you interact with them, how you respond to them, how you pursue that relationship with them? Doesn't that change things when it's no longer that that enemy, that evil person who is driving 55 in the fast lane and I'm late, don't they know I'm late and how important I am? You don't see it like that anymore. You see somebody who matters to God, and by definition, Christian, they matter to you. They matter to you. It should change your perspective when you change your heart. Mercy should be much easier to give. Verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, 
for they will be called children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. What's a peacemaker? I mean, that sounds real, real easy. Blessed are the peacemakers. That's right. Blessed are those that make peace. Amen. Preach on, preacher. No. What's a peacemaker? I mean, Colt made a firearm back in the 1800s. It was called a peacemaker. I suspect it made some peace, and I suspect it made some other things along the way as well. All right? But what is a peacemaker? I think we need to really investigate what it means to make peace. I think we need to look at what Jesus did as a peacemaker. After all, he is called the Prince of Peace, isn't he? See, our culture provides us with a definition of peacemaker. And I, the way I see that definition play out today, I'm not very comfortable with it. Because it doesn't align with what I saw in the Scriptures, what I see in the Scriptures that Jesus did. What I see our culture teaching our children and frankly teaching us as well about making peace today is this. When there is conflict, when there is conflict, when there is disagreement, disunity, disharmony, you need to compromise. But they've kind of twisted what compromise means because compromise can work. But now, people want you to compromise the truth. They want you to compromise what is real, what is near and dear to your heart. If you're a Christian, our culture wants you to compromise your Christian faith. They want you to deny Christ in an effort to make peace. I'll expand on that in a minute. The other side of that peacemaking definition I see at work in our culture is, hey, if there's discord and disharmony, if it's not happening, if, if the peace is broken, just, just sweep it under the rug and pretend that it didn't happen. Just pretend that it didn't happen. And that way you can keep the peace. So they think we can keep the peace either through compromising the truth or by just pretending it didn't happen. Well, if you pretend that it didn't happen, that's not peace. That's passive-aggressive. Because sooner or later, all that dirt under the rug is going to be a stinking mountain. And it's going to come bursting out from under. And everybody around is going to be filthy, dirty. You're going to pollute and poison a lot of people. And, and, and when you ever have run into a scorched earth person, somebody who just blows up, they've probably been storing all of the conflict in their life under the rug. And you may not even really be the person who's caused the conflict, but if you're in the, in the vicinity when they blow, man, it is ugly, isn't it? I worked for somebody like that one time. Oh my good, I learned new four-letter words as an adult. Like he would string them together and make new compound four-letter words. They were eight-letter words. And it was just a matter of too much conflict, unresolved, no peace, and eventually he blew. That's, that's not peace. I wouldn't think I was living in peace if I was living with all of that dirt under the rug. What did Jesus do when he encountered discord, disharmony, disunity? When he found that the peace was not there, what did the Prince of Peace do? Jesus never compromised on the truth. 
Not one time was he ever confronted about the truth, about what he taught or preached. Not one time in all of Scripture did he ever say, oh, you know what, you're entitled to your opinion, and I'm entitled to mine, and we'll just make nice and go on, and I won't say any more that, that, that I'm the Son of God. I won't say any more that I'm the, I'm the Savior. I'll pretend I'm not the way, the truth, and the life so that you can be comfortable in your ideas about things. Jesus didn't, he didn't compromise the truth. When he encountered sinners, when he encountered conflict, Jesus also didn't pretend that there was not a problem. He didn't do it. Never once in Scripture did he just brush it under the rug and pretend sin didn't exist or this person was okay or that this affront on him was, was fine. He, he, never, he never swept it under the rug and pretended that there was not a problem. I believe that Jesus, the Prince of Peace, actually loved conflict. Seriously. When I look at how Jesus handled conflict, what I see is that Jesus used conflict as an opportunity to share his love and to communicate the truth. Because conflict is an opportunity for somebody to receive that truth in love and to change. And in that change, then you have peace. If you don't, then Jesus left that person continuing down a path that was anything but peace. Think about it. When Jesus drove out demons, was there conflict? I'm going to guess, yeah. When Jesus was driving out demons, I'm going to guess those demons were seriously conflicted. They wanted to be in the person that they were in, but, but Jesus commanded them to come out. They didn't want to come out. They came out with difficulty in some cases. There was conflict. Did the person who was delivered from the demon experience peace? Amen? I think they had peace like maybe they had never known before. How about the woman at the well? Here's a great example. Jesus shows up at a well. He's by himself, a, a, a Jew. There's a, there's a woman there who's a Samaritan. The Jews and the Samaritans, man, they don't get along. They like to butt heads. And, 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 but a single man and a, and a woman, I mean, alone, that would, I mean, they should have never had a conversation. What did Jesus do? He struck up a conversation. The woman even asked him, why are you talking to me? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. We don't play. Jesus is like, conflict, whatever. And he confronted her with her sin. And he gave her the truth and love. And he told her if she would repent from her sin and believe in him, she would never be thirsty and have to draw spiritual water again or hungry again. She would be saved. And the woman was delivered from her sin. She ran off into the village and she told people, I, I just met the Son of God. Come and check this dude out. She had peace. And by the way, it was a peace that wasn't temporary, a peace that was lasting, a peace that, frankly, is eternal. When Jesus healed somebody on the Sabbath, the religious leaders came and confronted him. They created conflict. Jesus didn't back down, didn't shy away, didn't apologize for what he did. There was conflict. Jesus stood through the conflict. By the way, did the man who was healed find peace? Yes, he did. Jesus cleared the temple. He made a whip. He went to the temple and he, I would just be, let's just, we're all adults in here. Jesus went in there and kicked some butt and took some names. He went to the temple and he kicked some butt and he took some names. You think there was conflict when he was hitting people with a whip? Uh, yeah. 
when he's turning over the tables of the money? Yeah, conflict. But you know what? The temple had peace after that. When Jesus was betrayed and arrested, when he was tried and crucified, there was conflict. The conflict in Christ at that time was so intense, he sweated drops of blood. Did he back down? Did he compromise? He was tempted. He asked God if there's any other way, brother. Come on, daddy. Let me out of this. When he found there was no other way, he faced the conflict. When Jesus died on the cross, there was conflict. He cried out, my Lord, my God, why have you forsaken me? The sky darkened, the earth shook, and the veil in the temple was split in two. There was conflict. Serious, hardcore, deep-seated conflict. But when Jesus rose from the grave, there was peace. And again, it's not a temporary peace. It's not a false peace. It's a very real and lasting and eternal peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. Those who are willing to stand and deal with conflict. It's difficult. It's challenging. Conflict doesn't give you, dealing with conflict doesn't give you the right to beat on others and, and belittle them. And Jesus wasn't about arguments. He was about truth and love. But he never backed down and he never compromised on the truth. Today, that conflict that we face, man, it comes in a lot of different ways. It comes in a lot of different varieties. But if we'll deal with it, then we can have that peace. And not only can we have it, but we can share it with others. We have that peace because Christ was willing to deal with the conflict. Who do you know that's at odds with God? Maybe is at odds with you, that you have conflict with, that you've let it just go unaddressed, brushed it under the, the rug where it's piling up. Or you've compromised the truth and you just leave your, your Christian faith out of the equation in that relationship. Maybe it's time to have a constructive conflict so that growth and change and peace can come as a result. Verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. 
Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets before you. I think Jesus left this persecution piece to the end on purpose. (laughs) That's hard stuff. But you know the thing that you're left with at the end of a message or a sermon or a talk is usually the thing that you'll remember the longest. They say to make your most impactful points your first and last one. When you're addressing people, make your most impactful point the first and the last and make the last one the one that you want them to remember the most. I think Jesus wanted us to know that when we deal with conflict and we don't back down and we don't compromise the truth, when we stand firm in that conflict, well, sometimes we're putting ourselves out there for persecution. Because when we do that, we will raise the ire of the enemies of God. And let's be honest with ourselves, the enemies of God are numerous. The Bible says that there's you know, the narrow path and the wide road. The wide road is wide because it has more people on it. There are more enemies of God in this world than there are friends of God. Scary, huh? There's more enemies of God than there are friends of God. And by the way, many of the enemies of God are very powerful people. They're very powerful. And they have the ability to dish out persecution in in some very challenging ways. We think about persecution in the church as Americans. We rarely think that we are persecuted. And let's be honest, we really don't face persecution here in this country for our faith like most of the world or like many places in the world face persecution. There are places where it is illegal to be a Christian. It is illegal to own a Bible. It is illegal to to gather and and have a, a, a house church. I mean, the punishment can be death. People today are being tortured and martyred, killed for their faith in Christ around the globe. There's dangerous places out there to be a Christian. It's not dangerous to be a Christian in the United States. It's just not. Frankly, we've got it easy. And because we've had it easy for a long time, we're kind of soft. But I'm going to tell you, I believe the time is ripe. The culture we're in is ripe for persecution to increase in our country. Persecution of the church, of Christians. Honestly, it's been going on little by little for many years. Just little things, things we may not even classify as persecution. Little freedoms to practice your faith, freedoms of of faith that that we think we have that are being infringed upon, kicked around, sometimes flat taken away. Things like God's not allowed in school anymore. I mean, that's not technically true. It really isn't. If you're a parent of a student, know that they can pray in school. They can share their faith in school. They don't have to worry about reprisals. I mean, they shouldn't have to. Sometimes they do. But it's not illegal for them. The teachers can't really, you know, do it as an official statement. But, but we, more or less, make it very difficult for Christians to share their faith and to be public about them their, their faith in, in schools. We've taken the Ten Commandments out of courtrooms all across our land. Suit was filed 20-something years ago about removing Ten Commandments from 
a courtroom in Alabama, and this judge fought it and 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 fought it. And, fought it. and frankly, I, I, I just got tired of the story, and I don't even know how it ended up. But his was just one of many where the Ten Commandments were posted and, and somebody, you know, um, there's a guy in California that sues uh, communities who put up uh, religious uh, uh, scenes or whatever at Christmas time on the, you know, there was the, the deal here, uh, what was it, down in Athens where they had the, the manger scene and the guy in California, the atheist in California, sues them. And he was from Texas originally, but I think he's in California. Now. He sued him because he didn't think that it was right for them to have that up. It actually was perfectly fine and legal. But it just encumbers the Christians with, you know, legal defense and all this stuff. And just it just is infringing upon the rights of people to practice their faith. Those freedoms are under fire. There's a huge court case uproar, I mean, multiple, multiple suits filed right now about our nationalized health care requiring uh, some religious organizations well, it requires every employer to provide birth control as a part of their health care plan. Look, man, my wife works in the pharmaceutical industry for a company that produces birth control. It's one of the products that she represents. I got no problem with birth control. The issue is not birth control. By the way, the, the reason it is an issue is because some Christian churches see birth control as uh, an affront to God, like you're taking that out of his hands. The Catholic Church, it's a blanket policy for the Catholic Church, and they filed suit, and multiple other organizations have filed suit to try to change this, and promises have been made and not fulfilled, made and already broken. There's all kinds of stuff going around. Just little things, little freedoms to practice our faith that are being infringed upon. And if you think I'm taking a shot at our current administration, man, they're just the, they're just the current administration that's infringing upon these things. Again, it's been going on for years. This is not a political issue. It's a, it's a faith issue. It's not a birth control issue. It's a, it's a freedom to practice your faith issue. But you know what? I mean, Jesus said it right here. It's going to happen. And we find out in Revelation, it's got to happen. It has to happen. This is part of the equation. This is part of living in a fallen, sin-stained world. It has to happen. Persecution has to happen. Jesus said, when it does, what do you say exactly? Uh, rejoice and be glad. When it does, rejoice and be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven. I don't know if you'll ever face persecution of the kind that people in other countries face today where your life is threatened, your freedom is threatened. I don't know if you'll face that. I don't know if I'll face that. I do know this. The 11 disciples that were left, the 11 closest disciples to Jesus that were left after Judas did his thing, and then the one that they replaced Judas with, Stephen, they were all, all, persecuted to a man. They faced that conflict and they never backed down. They never came off their faith. They never denied the truth. They didn't sweep it under the rug. They stood boldly and proclaimed Christ. And to a man, they considered it joy 
to face persecution for their faith in Jesus. Paul said, For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. The disciples, the Apostle Paul, they knew something, not in their head, but in their hearts. They had hold of something really crucially important for all of us. See, our, our, our life is not this world. Your life is, it's not now. This is temporary. Your treasures are not in this life. It's not the, the houses and the cars and the jewelry, the trips and the food and the, and the people that you have relation. It's, it, that's not the treasure. And this isn't the life. Your life and your treasure are in heaven. It's eternal. This is temporary. What we're here for now is to bring glory to God and to share His love, His peace, His truth with others. How we interact with other people, these, these four blessings, these four paths to a blessed life, mercy, purity of heart, peacemaking, and receiving persecution with joy, that's just that's how we share Christ's love. And our treasure and our real life waits for us in heaven. Some more good news, since that was all so heavy. When the persecution really happens, the church will grow. The church historically has always grown under persecution. I'm not talking about Elevation Church. We may, who knows? I mean, we may explode and we may fold. <laughs> I don't know if persecution really came. But the church grows under persecution, and the reason the church grows under persecution is really unknown. It, I mean, really it is. I have some ideas, some philosophies. I think that maybe under persecution, those who are, you know, false followers, those who, who say they're Christians because it's cool or because it's, you know, maybe gets them out of something or whatever, um, under persecution, they'll, they'll, they'll like disappear. They're not going to stand firm and, and deal with the conflict. They're going to evaporate. They're going to disappear. They're going to be like, I don't want to deal with that. And they're going to let their, their Christianity just kind of, their, you know, Christianity kind of fade. And it's going to leave the real church, the hardcore, dedicated, full-on followers of Jesus, those who are ready to charge hell with water pistols at a moment's notice. It'll leave them unencumbered with the dead weight and more free to go do what God has called the church to go do. Free to go be what God has called the church to be. I think that's one reason why the church might grow under persecution. But it always has. It's grown under persecution. It grew when they had to meet in the catacombs underground by candlelight, stinking and smelling and all down under the city. It's growing in China where they are literally at risk of death and they meet clandestinely in homes. It's, it's growing in the Middle East where people are persecuted and, and killed and martyred for their faith in Christ. The church grows when the Christians aren't so comfortable. I can't explain why people flock to it, but they do. Treasure in heaven, real life, rewards we can't earn and probably can't even appreciate here and now. That's what awaits those who live this blessed life that Jesus describes in the Beatitudes.
those who submit their lives to Christ and who live their lives to share Christ with others. Real treasure and real life. Are you on board? Have you already punched your ticket? I think, are you on the train? Because who knows when that train's going to leave the station? You never know. None of us are getting out of this thing alive. It could be your day. You could live for another hundred years. But if you want to live blessed now and in eternity, Jesus has just given you the roadmap, black and white and red, for how to get there.